Excel Pro. So I took a couple of classes and actually this name partner did a night class and it was amazing. I mean, as much as I love science and the law, patent law gives you that idea to see all the cool things that come out of the lab, all the different things that change and you get to see why things happen and you get to do it from the safety of not having to worry about me messing up lab equipment, right? Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law, where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Neil Ungerleither. Today, we're going to talk about patent reform in biotech. Our guest is Jeannie Bettler. Jeannie is a partner at Stinson specializing in life sciences and patent law. We talk about patent eligibility and diagnostics, patent reform for biotech, biotech patents across different jurisdictions, and more. Excel Pro's interviews and products help to improve your day-to-day job performance and accelerate professional development. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP Law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now for my conversation with Gene Bettler. Jeannie, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Can you give our listeners some background on Stinson in your role there? Sure. So Stenson is an all-practice transactional and litigation law firm. The main offices are in the Midwest. We do have 14 offices that span from New York all the way to Dallas, but concentrate most of our offices in Minnesota, Missouri, Colorado, kind of the mid-America landscape. I am actually in the intellectual property department. I have a background in biology, and I started about 20, 23 years ago, something like that in the biotech, pharma, patent prosecution side. So I work with everything from universities to solo practitioners to public companies, doing anything from when they develop new drugs, new diagnostics. I work with them both in the United States Patent Office and globally to help get their patent or their IP protected on the patent side. I do a little bit of litigation support when it does come to enforcing or defending their patent rights, but most of my practice is patent prosecution. And it's a pretty big question, but how does patent eligibility impact pharma and biotech? Yeah, so patent eligibility, among with all the other requirements for a patent, historically was extremely low hurdle, right? I mean, under the policy of patent law, we want to progress the sciences. So anything that was useful under the sun for any purpose had patent eligibility other than natural laws, mental steps, things that already were occurring without human intervention. And up until about 2012, it kind of went smoothly. That was never something that I faced in my practice. We didn't try to patent perpetual motion machines and things like that. And it was an easy hurdle to get around if you even saw the hurdle. But back in 2012, the United States Supreme Court took on a case in which they decided to delve into what does patent eligibility mean? And for that case, it was a diagnostic slight treatment kind of thing where basically what they were doing is the claims wanted a practitioner to administer a drug and kind of see how the patient's body reacts. And the purpose of that is how well does the body react to that drug? Is the drug working? Is it doing what we want it to do? 
which historically, again, that's purposeful, useful for a purpose. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? All they're really doing is looking at what the natural body is doing itself. I mean, yes, you administered this treatment, but as far as your claims go, you're just watching what's happening already. That's a natural product. So let's revisit that eligibility. And as courts kind of looked at that decision, as patent examiners from the patent office decision, as they kind of decided, well, maybe we should look more into what is eligibility and is it really a low hurdle? And so in the biotech space, the problems that we're getting are both natural compounds, and it was DNA. If we tried to claim DNA sequences, any type of nucleic acid sequence, antibodies, are they really things that are happening in nature? Or did somebody do something to make it different, right? And on the diagnostic side is, really, are you just watching what's happening in the body? If a patient you think has a disease or some type of condition, are you doing more than watching what the body does naturally in response to it? And it pushed that eligibility requirement to be a pretty big hurdle. And where the natural product and DNA sequencing goes, there are ways to kind of overcome that and move on. We've really seen a lot of pushback in the diagnostic industry. And it's been one of those that really a diagnostic, when you look at the test, you take a sample from a patient that you suspect has some type of disease. You contact it typically with a protein like an antibody in their body, and then it lights up, right? I mean, we send some kind of label and we say, oh, they have this protein or they don't have this protein. And so it detects they have a disease and diagnoses them with some type of disorder or disease for treatment later on. The biggest hurdle for diagnostics is that what else could they add to that claim, right? I mean, what kind of man-made step could get around that? And so I think in the last probably six, seven years, it's really been difficult. The patent office has tried helping. They've given some life science examples where they kind of give example claims on how they think it could be worded to get around it. We've also seen some court cases try to take it on, but it's really been a struggle. And for diagnostic companies, we're kind of almost closing off that industry to patent protection. One of the things that has really been a struggle is examiners are saying, well, if you used a novel protein or antibody to detect it, right, that you've made, well, that would be great. But most diagnostic companies are using antibodies. They don't make antibodies, so they're just using what's available for certain proteins and certain binding. Another way of trying to get around it is they're like, well, add a treatment step. And so once you diagnose this subject is actually having this disorder, administer some type of therapeutic. Again, that does get you around your patent eligibility, but the diagnostic company is not typically in the practice of also treating, right? I mean, typically your doctor treats you or a allergic care or a hospital treats you. And so then you get to the point of when you try to enforce these type of patent is how much value is the patent worth? Because I can't enforce it against my competitor because they're not treating, right? My competitor in the diagnostic world is coming up with kits that diagnose diseases. So they haven't done every step of my claim, and I can't enforce that claim unless I want to sue a doctor as well. Most people, policy-wise, don't want to sue your doctors. And it's also just, you don't want to have to try to prove that the doctor has knowingly done this as well. I have a client, and globally, they've kind of looked back at this, and they said, maybe this isn't something worth patenting, which I don't know if we want that in the United States. I don't know if we want diagnostic companies all of a sudden deciding it's not worth it in the United States to try to get protection because then how much effort do they put into the United States market of these tests?
I actually want to take a step back really quickly. Sure. So you mentioned the Supreme Court case that set the stage for all this. Yep. What case was that? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So it's Mayo versus Prometheus. It was the Mayo Clinic. Typically, people just call it Mayo. But it was, yeah, 2012. And really, it was a little surprising because the Supreme Court... I am impressed at how well those justices can go across the legal industry and get so caught up on laws and rules and intricacies, especially in patent law, because they also had to get on biotech knowledge itself, right? And they did so well with getting on board with that. And I don't think they intended to close off an industry, but they left it so vague when they were done, right? I mean, the way they really held it is, we think all you've done is watch something natural happen, and we need something more. But what's that something more? Nobody's really said, right? I mean, they keep saying just something more. And that's how patent examiners, when they reject your claim, you don't have something more. (laughs) And nobody knows what that would be, right? I mean, except if you administer a treatment or if you do something almost too much and then it's not really the diagnostic that you're trying to protect. And you mentioned it really briefly, but I'd love to hear more about it. For diagnostics, what are some of the patent issues that are unique to them as opposed to other parts of the biotech and life sciences fields? Right. Well, one of the things, I mean, for diagnostics, it's usually method claims only, right? I mean, they can cover their kit. When you go to the urgent care and they've got the little swabs that they have for strep or for influenza A, B, those are all kits that probably have been patented as well, right? And it patents the actual devices to test, the fluid that's on the device, the protein that's in that fluid as well as the antibody that they're using. It's the combination of those things, right? The thing with diagnostic companies is as great as to get a kit patent on that is, it's also very easy to design around. Again, they're not using novel proteins, novel antibodies typically in those kits. They're using what's known. There's not just one antibody. There's millions of antibodies that could function and bind to the same thing in the person's body. And so unlike other biotech that can reach out and say, I'm going to try to get the composition and I'm going to try to do this protein or this nucleic acid DNA sequence, and I want to try to get a composition that includes that sequence. For diagnostic company, they really have their method of using their most powerful, the broadest protection they can get. So that way that if their competitor says, hey, you know, that's great. I really like how fast or how efficient or how accurate that diagnostic is. I want to use it. They could license or a lot of them could say, hey, but all I can do is switch out the antibody and I can do the same thing. So to get something, the method itself and be broad enough to just detecting a certain protein or blood biomarker and to label it with anything. I mean, you can label it, you get a little broader protection. So again, and like product companies, pharmaceutical companies, there's not a whole bunch of different ways to protect that method. And then also adding a treatment step, you're doing something that they don't do, their competitors don't do and you're creating divided infringement. So the patent itself becomes not really commercially viable. It's not really covering what their commercial embodiment is. And they no longer have that leverage of, hey, my competitor is now trying to use it and I can't really stop them from doing it. What are some of the most important issues when it comes to patents involving DNA sequencing techniques? So again, I mean, not only do you have the patent eligibility problems because Are they natural products? I mean, our DNA is what it is, but it does mutate naturally. So how much different does it have to be from what's occurring in human bodies and the animal bodies? So any type of living organism's body, how much different does it have to be to protect it? 
The bigger issues we're seeing in the biotech and the nucleic acid DNA type patenting process is another requirement of patenting is that you need to have it adequately described and enabled. There are two different requirements. Adequately described saying you've described it in your written application such that one can envision what you meant by all your terms. And then the second requirement being enablement that you've enabled somebody that has the same skill in the art to repeat that and make the same product, practice the same method. The problem with DNA and the antibody type patenting applications right now is we've heightened that standard as well. So five or six years ago, we had an AbbVie versus Jensen Biotech. And in that case, they tried to claim antibodies that functioned a certain way, that bind to a certain protein. And the way they described it is, you know, in their application itself, which includes your claims that we've been talking about that actually identify what you're trying to protect, you also kind of describe around it, you know, describe everything, why you're doing it, how it works, and then what benefit it has. They put in over 300 antibodies that would meet the requirement of their function. Historically, that has been a pretty good amount of description to get the generic antibody that binds to this protein, or I want an antibody that functions this way. And in the AbB case, the Supreme Court said, I know you have 300 antibodies. I'm not sure that's adequately described. They're all structurally pretty similar. So I don't know where the end boundary is. There's a lot of proteins that can function that have completely different structures. And I'm not sure one skilled in the art could envision every single type of antibody. In one respect, it made it closer to globally how other patent offices in different countries and different regions see this whole describing your invention. But it cut off being able to broadly claim these things for companies. Just kind of like the diagnostic, antibodies, a lot of them are known. The way they function are known, or at least can be routinely experimented on. So if I have to name my specific antibody in my claim, I really didn't get much because somebody else can come along and say, I don't want to give you anything for your effort. I'll just design around it and tweak it a little bit and get my own. And the court came down saying 300 is not enough. I don't know what is. There's no set number. I just need to know enough about the functionality and some type of structure. I need to know a lot about the structure, but I'm not going to tell you where that line is. When I was trying to get an antibody, I know I don't want to protect this one or even this 300. I want to protect everything that binds in this area. And again, I see the policy that the courts were using is that you don't want somebody to monopolize the whole area. The whole idea of pet law is that you're supposed to progress science, right? Company A comes up with a great idea. Company B says that was a great idea, but look, I can build off of it and get something even better for society. So the idea behind it was that nobody wants to block off a whole group of antibodies or a whole function. But at the same time, they didn't set forth boundaries of how much can you get? Where's the line of what you need? And so that's become an issue of just kind of how much, how valuable can I make my patent for this client? So you just mentioned something about jurisdictions and international and patents across different countries. So for our listeners who may work with different kinds of clients, What are some of the big patent issues right now across different jurisdictions for biotech and life sciences? Right, right. So going back to the patent eligibility, one of the biggest things I'm facing with some of my clients that reach globally with their technology and commercial embodiments is that the patent eligibility standard we now have in the biotech space for the United States is extremely different than what we're seeing in Europe, in Japan, China, pretty much every jurisdiction. 
a lot of times companies that are going globally, they'll file a global or international application. And that gets broken off into the countries. Typically, we like to see prosecution examination go pretty similarly, right? Similar in scope with the claims, with similar arguments being made. We want to make sure that we don't step on ourselves as we go across jurisdictions. And somebody can't come in and say, hey, you said this in Europe, but then you kind of contradicted yourself in Japan or the United States. And so we like it going the same way. There's not really an equivalent of what our standard is for eligibility when you see it globally. And just on a business kind of front is it's extremely uncomfortable to have to tell your global client, I know you've received patent protection in every jurisdiction besides the United States. But what I'm telling you here is the only way we're going to get it is to add a treatment claim that I know you don't want to add. It's very hard to explain to the client and they're very sophisticated. They understand what the United States has done, even if they're not based in the United States. But it's still extremely difficult to have to go up to business people and say, I know that everywhere else has allowed this. So that's been difficult just for that reason. Again, with the enablement written description kind of DNA sequencing rules, they have made it more consistent. So I don't think that's been near as a problem explaining it to the global clients. So they're getting the same types of pushback in these other countries. So I don't see it quite as much of a business problem. I also want to ask a couple of questions about the career side of things. So you mentioned earlier coming from a science background. What was your past IP law like? Mine was not a typical career path. I went into biology because I have always been excited about science and math, and I did relatively well going through school. And so from a very early age, I thought I could be a doctor. I wanted to go to med school. I wanted to help people. And my mom told me, if you're going to be a doctor, you're going to have to be sympathetic to people when they get hurt or when they cry. And I thought, yeah, I know I could do that too. But I really found as I was going through, especially my undergrad in biology, I took a class. It was a forensic pathology class. And it was the medical examiner in central Missouri. Fantastic. Still my favorite class of all time. Plus true crime was getting to be a big thing, right? I mean, it still is. And so I thought, how much fun would it be to be able to be a doctor that doesn't have to have a good bedside manner, right? But that can help with law enforcement crime, trying to put away dangerous people, trying to help solve why things happen as they do. And you also get to see with disease, right? I mean, how did that progress in somebody's body? I could not believe how interesting that class was. I mean, even for some of my friends that took it, not in the biology world, it was phenomenal. So I was like, okay, I think I've, I found my career path. And then I interned with a forensic pathologist and I found out that I don't get to do that right out of med school. They're going to make me work in a pathology lab, which is great. But given my undergraduate laboratory experience, I am not the best at lab work. My mom and dad spent more money on lab equipment that I had destroyed during undergrad than I think my textbooks. So it was one of those things that, okay, well, maybe if I can't be a forensic pathologist, what do I want to do on that criminal side? And so I started looking at law because the forensic pathologist that I interned with, she was mentioning that she's like, you know, I actually have my law degree as well because I'm deposed so often and in court so often talking about things. It just made sense to get that as well. So I said, you know what? Maybe what I'll do is go to law school and we'll figure out my path in the med school version, but let's get this done first. And I just kind of lucked out the very first week of school. I got to sit by a fellow student whose neighbor was a name partner in an IP boutique in St. Louis. And so when she heard about my background, she's like, oh, you probably want to go into patent law. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. 
So I took a couple classes and actually this name partner did a night class and it was amazing. I mean, as much as I love science and the law, patent law gives you that idea to see all the cool things that come out of the lab, all the different things that change and you get to see why things happen and you get to do it from the safety of not having to worry about me messing up lab equipment, right? I span everything from the pharmaceutical world where a new drug is being patented and we're trying to cure some disorder disease all the way to consumer hygiene products, right? I mean, I had a client when I first started out that was in infant care. And so they had diapers, wet wipes. And you thought, man, we've had diapers for a long time. What could possibly be happening? But one of the cool things they did is try to make the diapers more absorbent, right? We don't want children to have to feel any type of liquid against their body. We also don't want any kind of reaction. But then at the same time, they were noticing that delayed potty training, right? So now you have, and I'm sure you've seen the commercial where they put like the design come on diapers or it has a feeling where the insulation in the diaper itself expands. So it puts a little pressure. My husband laughs because he was like, so you wanted to cure cancer, you wanted to be a doctor, and now you're making diapers more absorbent, right? <laughs> but you do get to see something different every day from the lab. And it's so cool how technology, how fast these companies are progressing things that we take for granted in everyday life. And my last question, do you have any advice for anyone else from biology background who's entering law? Yeah, it's something that's so exciting with the science background that I know people think, oh, lawyers, that's probably sitting behind a desk or arguing in front of a judge. And to our litigators, I know they love that too. But it's so interesting to see with your science background how much law and science can go together and how you can work things to help improve our comforts, improve our health. And everything we do, it changes so often. I feel like a lot of times, one of the drawbacks of being in the prosecution side, I see products right off of the lab, right? I get to see it before anybody else has seen it, which is a super cool thought. One of the things that I think would be fun, and if they go to law school, you can always do in litigation, is see how that plays out on the market, right? I mean, see how things that go onto the market, and it's really cool scientifically, but how it's valued, how consumers react to it, and then to try to play off of why is it so much better than before? Because now you've got to defend it. And so I think with the science background, you not only get that technology, you get to see, you have to keep involved in the science and in the progress, but you get to see it from a commercial side, a business side. You get to see the whole picture. If I stayed in biology and I went into the lab, I only get to see what's in the lab, right? I don't ever get to see it progress. Same thing in the university setting. Obviously, there are a lot of fish in the biotech side postdocs and PhD that decide to go to law school and do this. And they stay in the university for a little bit, but they're in the same lab all the time. And they're going to do a lot of the same things for their whole career. And I'm sure that is probably phenomenal for some people, but you get to see so much more when you go into the law side of it, right? I mean, you get to see so many different types of things. That was Jeannie Beller. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J O I N A C C E L P R O.com.
Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day-to-day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-A-C-C-E-L. Excel Pro IP Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kulkarni, Caitlin Cole, Jared Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Matt Crossman, and me, Neil Ungleither. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.